Welcome. I'm Jean Mizutani from Include NYC, here with today's guest, Ray Siegel. Today's edition of Disability Inc. is about supporting autonomy and independence in youth with disabilities. And we're very fortunate to be able to get this information straight from the horse's mouth. Ray is the father of two young men on the autistic spectrum, 18 and 23 years old, whom we know well as they have both volunteered here and one now sits on our junior board. Autonomy and independence for young adults with disabilities sounds like a wonderful goal, but parents often struggle creating a vision for how our kids' lives will look once they become adults. So we looked for information and found that there was no roadmap. That even though higher expectations for young adults with disabilities are becoming more common, almost no one was providing information about how exactly these higher expectations were being built, planned, and achieved. When I learned that our junior board member, age 23, was living independently in the Bronx, I contacted his dad, Ray, and he was kind enough to agree to share his family's ongoing experience supporting self-advocacy and independence. Welcome, Ray, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Gene. I'm really happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your sons. So, my sons are 23 and 18. Um, Though born five years apart, they both uh, showed the signs of autism relatively the same time in relatively the same way. They both had fairly large uh, vocabularies, which word by word started to disappear around between 18 months and 24, 18 and 24 months. Um, what we didn't realize actually with my older son was it wasn't just that he was losing language, it was also that he wasn't playing appropriately, he wasn't making eye contact, running around the room, turning on and off the lights. Uh, all of that we learned and understand later that he had stopped really relating um, to us and to other people. Uh, he, had, he became very rigid about you know what routes he would take. He would actually stick his foot down so he couldn't move the stroller. There were particular streets and things, you know. Um, but they're very, you know. That being said, he actually started speaking once we got into early intervention and programs to provide supports. His first word back was the word moo. And he's very he's a very sunny personality and he really likes people. So the the language started coming back in fairly I wouldn't say fast, but you know, at a at a at a decent pace. Whereas my second son, uh, it took several he was almost six years old before his language came back in. Um, took but during that time he learned how to read. So he actually learned how to read before he learned how to uh, speak and use words. Um, and he's just, they, you know, like any kids, they're, you know, they're very, very different from one another. They both have the same right. diagnosis, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. But, you know, we have one, you know, one is studious and is going to be a senior in high school. With, he's gotten through public high school with supports. My other son, uh, my older son, graduated from uh, a career 
sorry, um, a vocational program for people on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, he's having a great time working 20 hours a week and volunteering a lot. So they couldn't be more different in terms of their personalities. That's really cool. Well, I'm really happy to talk about the independence of your older son because, you know, the people that are listening to us today know what District 75 is. They know what OPWDD eligibility is. And this is a youth District 75 graduate and eligible for OPWDD. So for me, it was twice as thrilling to hear that he was living independently and successfully in his own apartment. So this kind of result doesn't happen by itself. So tell us how you developed and pursued this vision of independence so early. So I have to back up a little bit. Um, I have two young, I'm 53 and I have two younger brothers who are 50 and, well, 51 and 50. And they're both blind. I have an older brother as well. But um, their transition uh, to independence and to adulthood was very, very, it was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge for them, it was a challenge for, for my parents. And so I walked away from, you know, seeing how hard it could be to both let go uh, and to be let go of. Mm -hmm. uh, even when you really, really wanted to, um, your kids to be independent. My, my parents, it was a very, you know, that, that dance is very difficult. My parents really wanted my brothers to be independent. They allowed, gave them enormous amounts of freedom to go out and move around. We grew up in Ohio, so it's a, maybe a little different, but to get out and ride bicycles and and blind people do ride bicycles, uh, <laughs> take buses, and you know, kind of engage with the world. Um, but on the other hand, um, so but even even with those things, sort of learning to operate on their own took uh, a while, and there was a very big difference between between the two of them. Um, the older of my two brothers. Uh, was mainstreamed. That's the old word we used to use through his, mm -hmm. his whole education uh, in both public and private schools. My youngest brother had a lot of time. He had, he had a lot of learning challenges and cognitive challenges and he bounced from school to school. And at a certain point when he was in around high school age, he went to the school for the blind, the state school for the blind. My parents had really resisted that. My father was a psychologist and he wanted to keep them out of institutional settings at all costs. A certain point, very early, when my young, my older, my two younger brothers was maybe three or four years old, where the state who lives in Ohio wanted to institutionalize him because they thought that he was autistic as well as blind, and uh, my parents were able to make that not happen. But the point I'm getting to is that when my youngest brother went to the state school for the blind, he developed a community and a sense of identity as uh, a blind and visually impaired person. I mean, they have their own subculture. They gave him assertiveness training. And um, uh, there's been this huge difference over time between, you know, my, the older of my two younger brothers is very, very smart uh, person. Uh, they're both, but he has not, he doesn't feel as comfortable advocating for himself, whereas my younger brother advocates for himself a lot. And I think that that, that was actually this difference of actually developing a positive, healthy identity for himself as a visually impaired or blind person, 
Whereas, honestly, the older of my two younger brothers, you know, really didn't think of himself as blind. Um, wow. So you had that experience rattling around in your subconscious. Yeah. What gave you the courage? I think a lot of parents want to do the right thing, but they don't know what that is and they're afraid to start. Well, so there were kind of, there's two, two different tracks here. I mean, because, you know, from the very youngest ages, I started talking to my kids uh, so that they were aware about disability and about autism to whatever extent they could understand. I'm not really sure the older of my two, he knows he has something called autism or he's on the autistic spectrum. I don't think he really understands what that means or he doesn't totally or he can't articulate it. Whereas my younger of my two sons is very articulate about it and he does understand. He's read all, you know, I mean, he's read all the books and can probably, you know, can tell you about IDEA and everything else. Um, but that was very important to me because I wanted them to be able to be proud and own this and own it as a part of their personalities and not just all of, you know, like, you know, that, that there's this, this disability, you know, that it's not just about that, this is part of who they are. And, um, you know, it's one of the things that they, you can live with and kind of adapt, adapt to and, you know, be the most of who you can be as a person. And that's really what I wanted them to be. But very early on, and the other thing though is that my wife and I very early on, I remember having a conversation with her, and this was when I think, I don't remember if, you, if my youngest son had been born or not, but uh, we were talking about my older son, I don't remember if he was even talking, he was probably five or six by this point, and we were talking about what we would want for him, what would be the best thing for him, and we kind of imagined that what we want is for him to be living in an apartment on his own, maybe with somebody else, you know, maybe with roommates. So that was sort of in our minds. I mean, we didn't know what he was going to be capable of doing. I mean, we knew that he was, you know, we didn't expect that, you know, we knew that, that he would probably need supports for a good part of, if not all of his life. We just didn't know. And so that was the sort of best case scenario that we thought, we thought. And sort of along the way, consciously or unconsciously, we supported um, getting to that point, both in terms of giving him choices, uh, giving him certain amounts of freedom and supports, both of them, to do things that they were good at. Um, my wife is very, um, wife's, uh, got, uh, very interested in real estate. She's a New Yorker, so uh, <laughs> she uh, found an apartment that she bought. My, her father died, and she took the inheritance that she got, and she bought an apartment in the Bronx, which was at that point still near near Yankee Stadium. Was you know it was still kind of a rough area. Right. Um, what she says now is that she thought we were going to outgrow our house, and we would need to move there. But I remember very distinctly. We, dis we disagree about <laughs> That's this. Not that, what she said that, at the time. Yeah, at the time, my memory was that you know we had thought he would move in the same building with us, where we were living in an apartment building. But it really became clear that wouldn't be good for him or for us. That he needed to be somewhere else. So she rented it out for seven or eight years. And as we got closer to uh, the point at which he was uh, going to graduate high school at 21, and our younger son was preparing to go to high school getting ready to go to high school, we started making the transition. And the transition was both, um, it was really three parts. One was job, 
right. one was a place to live, and the other was having a, a kind of social sphere. I mean, I mean, when part of one of the advantages I feel that I had was uh, because I had my brothers, I knew that you know people aren't just blind or they're just not disabled when they're little kids. People grow up. Ah. Well, you know, I was just wondering about that because I think it's relatively rare for a couple to sit and talk about their child with a disability at age five and say, what kind of adulthood do you foresee? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, this is my memory, my memory of when it took place, so I could be wrong, but, but I think that the impulse was, the impulse was there. Um, we were given money by the, um, we're both filmmakers, and we were given money to develop a series about pervasive developmental disorders in uh, 1999, so it was a little bit before the, the big wave hit, and one of the things that we did with that money is I went down to, I really wanted to meet some adults on the autistic spectrum. And I went to the, uh, North Carolina, which has a program called the TEACH program, it's statewide, it's been around since the 60s, that has a very comprehensive cradle-to-grave program of supports for people who have speech and communication issues, problems, challenges. And for them, that also includes autism. And I had the opportunity there to meet, um, at, meet a range of people, uh, adults, young adults, older adults, people who worked in factories, people who had college educations, as well as people who, you know, were living in group homes and didn't really have, you know, didn't have that, didn't have uh, quite the same level of skills. And a lot of time what was different, it was, it really was clear which per people had families that were still involved with them and had been able to give them the kinds of supports mm -hmm. that they needed to be um, independent and learn to take care of themselves. Um, but that that helped tremendously in terms of thinking like, oh, well, you know, we don't know where this is going to have go, but, you know, uh, it's very possible that, you know, think, you know, it's not going to, you know, this is not, the end is not, this, his life is not over, our lives are not over. It's a question of, um, you know, how, how can we make this happen in the long run. So by meeting the adults with autism, you were able to see a role model, you were able to plan and envision and build around it. That's what it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. That was a pretty good idea. Now, what about risk? Because most parents will say that they want their kids to be safe, and they're very unsure about what kind of risk is prudent, or even if it is. Yeah, I mean, the risk, I mean, over and over and over, and this is Probably right in actually to um, the original idea for Oscar. Uh, my sorry, my older son's apartment was that he would have a roommate, somebody else who was on the spectrum mm -hmm. or something like the spectrum. And what we found were all of, none of the parents we met and we reached out to a lot of people were really ready to let their kids go. They were really afraid, uh, or, or the kids were afraid, um, and they just weren't sure when they would be ready to to go. Um, and so, you know, negotiating risk is, I still negotiate it every day. I think all, all parents do, and we have, all have different levels of tolerance, but I also find that I need to, uh, live with my own fear 
and and let let go. Frankly, I mean, you know, it's sort of like with my younger son. I remember he was not my older son. Like, you know, memorized the the subways when he was very young. So you could have dropped him at any, you know, place, and he would have gotten back. <laughs> um, but my younger son wasn't sort of that attuned at the same age. And so it came to a point where, you know, I was taking him down from Washington Heights all the way down to um, a program he did at the Children's Museum of Arts. And it was summer, and, you know, it took an hour, hour each way out of my time. And it seemed like he was ready to do it on his own. So the first thing I, you know, was really letting him walk from the subway to the Children's Museum of the Arts on his own. And then, you know, I know other parents have done this where one parent or, or somebody has gotten it in one end of the subway and somebody's been at right. the other. So, it, you know, when I've been uncomfortable, I've often just done it a little bit at a time. And then other times, it's like I just have had to take the plunge and, you know, let them take the plunge. I mean, even goes now, it's like my older son started getting invited to conferences and, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and so like you know, we would, I went with him to one conference, and then, but you know, recently he like he wanted to take the train from you know um, Grand Central, uh, you know from well he had it was in Albany, he was going up there. They were putting him up in a hotel by himself, and you know, and then he had to come back, and it was going to be nighttime, and that actually was the part that concerned me the most because it would have been coming back at 125th Street at like 11 o'clock at night. Right. So I did meet him at that end, but I realized kind of he was telling me, I'm ready to do this. You know, I'm ready to get on that train. I'm ready to, you know, find the taxi and get to the, uh, you know. And I realized that I kind of had to check my own fears and, you know, uh, thinking about the million and one things that could go wrong. And uh, let let him do that, you know. And now he wants to do an airplane, so I think that's brilliant. Why not? So I've got. Where's he going, Ray? Well, well, yeah, he's trying to get somebody to pay for him to go to a conference in Indiana. But I mean, we had a whole conversation about it because I said, well, you know, maybe I'll I'll meet, I'll drop you at the airport so I can make sure you get through security, okay? And he was like, no, I want to go myself. There you go. And I realized, like, well, you know what? He wants to do it himself. So, is he studying youth leadership too? It sounds to me like he's beyond self-advocacy and independence. He does, he does these um, leadership. Leadership's in it. Uh, yes, he, he's part of different kinds of leadership groups and leadership training groups. Um, some are specifically for people on the spectrum. There's one, there's an organization called Youth Power, which is all about um, empowering youth from all kinds of backgrounds right. that don't actually get to contribute much. You know, they're learning how to talk to politicians and things like that. But Oscar, I think mainly his, his the way he leads is by, you know, kind of inspiring people, by being the one who goes ahead and does it. I mean, you know, his old school will invite him back to talk to his class about what it's like to have a real job, to work 16 hours a week. and. I hope they're giving him an honorarium for that appearance. No, he has to work on that now. That's the next thing on the yes. list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that your wife saw fit to buy an apartment, um, maybe for 
your older son maybe for the family at another time. But it looks like she was pretty foresightful too and very supportive of this process. Tell me more about her role. So actually one of the things I'm going to tell you, it's so Oscar's psychiatrist uh, got to know both kids. We've had, he's had the same psychiatrist since uh, for a long time. And, uh, Oscar, I'm sorry, well, I've already given his name, so. That's right. Yeah, so um, at a certain point, you know, they, they're not close. They don't really relate to each other very much, but at a certain point, she said to us, you really need to get Oscar out of the house um, when, he go, when your younger son goes to oh. high school, mm -hmm. because he's really going to need that time to study and not be distracted. Uh, and so that actually kind of gave us a time frame also. Wow. Was that the real reason, right? Was that why you suggested he get out of the house when your younger son entered high school? Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it was, it was, it, I mean, I'm not talking about the full dynamics of the situation, mm -hmm. but my older son is in a huge presence. <laughs> and my younger son always was sort of in his shadow and you know his leaps in in talking as he was growing up always happened when my older son was in camp my younger son went ah, to camp ah, okay. went to camp for a couple of years but then stopped because he preferred and we preferred him having him you know have time with us and like i said that's when his language always jumped the downside is he didn't spend the time being on his own away from us and now right. at the age of 18 he's you know, we're working on, on those issues. Uh, but I want to go back to my wife. Yes. Because that was the question you asked. That's right. Um, so I talked to my wife about this because I don't feel comfortable speaking for my wife. I would much rather have her speaking for herself. So maybe you can interview her at some Great point. Great idea. Um, but what she said was that basic. I mean, what she says is that she doesn't like it when she sees parents trying to live through their kids and that her idea has always been that she wanted her you know our kids to be as much of themselves and to support them and their strengths um, as as possible um, she doesn't there isn't a lot of disability in her I mean, there isn't really I and mean, she grew up in you know the kind of family that really doesn't didn't talk about or have I mean, there were some people in other generations who had disabilities, but, um, I, you know, I don't know the extent to which, you know, she, being around my family, which she wasn't a lot, but, mm -hmm. you know, saw, like, my brothers living at home mm -hmm. and how bad it was for them and how bad it was for my parents, and, um, that, you know, that she could see that it would be much better off if uh, he had his, my older son had his, well, both of our kids have as much lives and identities as possible are separate from ours. So that's kind she, of... She sounds pretty great. So she is pretty great. She's pretty great, obviously. So it's wonderful that your family had that opportunity. She had an inheritance. She chose to spend it on an apartment. Yes, your we're older son. very, very fortunate. That is super duper. So I'm wondering, because this is not an option for every family, and I'm wondering how the U.S. compares with other countries in terms of planning and supports to enhance the independence I, of people with disabilities. Unfortunately, 
Gene, I can't answer that. I'd love to. I want, I want to, I really want to, I'd really love to, you know, travel to some other parts of the world uh, to see how things are different in countries where there's, you know, national health care and a support network and a support system. Um, but I can't, I can't really answer that question. One of the things that I can say is that it's not just about those things, but it's, you know, how people do seems to be as much about, you know, how otherness or disability is seen within different, you know, within a culture and whether there are places in a culture for for people or not, you know. And, and I mean, boy, that's a little vague, but it's kind of like sort of one of the thing ideas that people talk about with autism is this idea that, you know, for a long time we were an agrarian society and then there were lots of jobs where it just required filing and things like that. So there were places, you know, where people could go and do stuff and, you know, they might have had a few odd characteristics, but basically nobody really noticed and they just fit into their community. But now, you know, in the kind of society that we live in, which is so based around getting along with other people and social interactions, <laughs> what would not have been considered unusual in the past mm -hmm. uh, is considered usual. And I think that, that my observation and from talking to people in other, from other countries, that, um, you know, that, that the things change culturally too. What, what, what the place or places, the possibility of place is for people with different kinds of disabilities is different. Uh, across different cultures. I want to add one more thing to that. So one of the things that um, I've thought about I, um, since I was very young, well, since I went to college, basically, is this, the idea of disability is a social construct. Um, that disability, the meaning of disability, how people with disabilities are treated, the identity of a person who has disability, the identity of people around them, their parents, their community, their relatives, um, change, you know, is 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 construct is culture is is uh, constructed by the culture. So what I'm talking about is, do we see um, people with disabilities as uh, objects of pity, objects? Uh, you know, objects of pity, which need people who need to be helped or supported or protected, or do we see them as human beings uh, who have their own minds and brains and experiences um, and can tell and interact with us and if we listen to them and have a huge amount to contribute to the world? And those are two very, very different kinds of ways of seeing and thinking about um, Disabilities and, and 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 goes back to like how parents interact with with their children and think of, think of their children. You know, if you grew up in a household, you know, or where you know people with disabilities were thought of as a thing or some you know there was a catastrophe. You know, those are going to be the things that you are going to bring to you could very well bring to the situation. You know, if you end up having a child with a disability where, you know, you might be bringing those kinds of ideas and thoughts with you. And that can be a really hard, um, you know, that can be really hard for people. One of the things you've said before was that disability is a family or community affair and not an individual one. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, 
I don't think I, I, um, I don't even know if it was an affair, but it's sort of like, yeah, um, I get What I meant by that was that uh, it, people don't live in isolation. When there's somebody who uh, has a disability in a family, uh, everybody is involved. And it's not something that is just about that person. It's about, it changes, changes the relationship, if, you know, it changes the relationships between the grown-ups and the family, so, you know, including extended families. Uh, it changes the relationship between siblings. Uh, it can be very hard sometimes for siblings when, you know, one child, you know, the child gets all the attention and they don't get, you know, the attention that they need. Or, you know, also, that you know, or people become really protective of and may become the only friends of a sibling that has a, a disability. Um, so it plays itself out in, in a lot of different ways, but then not, you know, a family with somebody with a disability is not necessarily understood by their community about the particular kinds of, of needs and stresses that may be on that family and that there are accommodations that are needed for the whole family right, for in order to have a healthy family and have a healthy family life. Yeah, so that's the next stage we need to get to as a society. That's what should come next. So I have another question for you about supported decision making. Um, we've noticed that society's expect expectations for youth with disabilities has been rising and um, the fact that supported decision-making um, came on the scene sends a strong signal. It really, re oh, I'm sorry, it replaces guardianship in general. In supported decision-making, a network of support is created, which enables the individual with a disability to actually be the decision-maker, to view the individual with a disability in that light as the decision-maker is a breakthrough and it's really different from the guardianship of the past. What is your opinion of that? Um, I think it's fantastic. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, it's something that we still have to figure out ways to make it work. Uh, because just because, you know, you give people, people choices, they have to have the supports to actually be able to act on their, on their choices. So. Uh, what I mean is very simply, like, you know, if somebody wants to live on their own, or wants to live with a roommate, there has to be some way for them to fund, you know, fund that. And if the structures aren't in place that allow people to live independent lives, that, you know, to have funding for job coaches if they need them, to, you know, for funding, for training, uh, to realize, you know, then, then you can give people all the legal rights in the world, but if, if there's not a structure that supports independence, um, it's going to be very hard for it to work out. That's not to say, I mean, the larger idea of people, I, I think it's really wonderful the idea that you, of having people, have a group of people who help them make decisions in different areas of their lives. Because it also means that you have a group of people, it's much better to have a group of people, in my opinion, concerned about the welfare of an individual than all of the power, you know, for decision making being placed in the hands of, of one of one person. Um, although, you know, that being said, we did have a guardianship hearing with my older son. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, and I I'm not ready to give that up. 
And at the same time, um, you know, we're building these, you know, resources for him of people that he can turn, you know, turn to. I have to say, there's another thing that I have to say is that it's very largely dependent on personality too. It's like my older son is very social, has a large, large networks, and a lot of people he already asks for things from. And my younger son, I mean, we've been talking about this the last few days, he was like saying, you know, what will happen to me if you and mom aren't there? And his personality is very, very, very different. So, um, so it just illustrates this idea of, it's a great idea in theory, but then how do we actually tailor it to the needs of the individual person? It's definitely challenging, and so is the financial piece, but still, it's an important component, and um, it's safer, the idea of bringing a lot of people in that are trusted, and because of technology these days, it can actually done, be done through FaceTime or Skype. There's many ways that people can participate, so if Granny isn't local, she can still participate. I've seen some family groups where the beloved babysitter or the longtime neighbor is a part of it. So are you trying to build that for your younger son? It's funny because uh, these are the issues that actually I'm we've spent so much of our time and energy concentrating on our older son, right. which, you know, my younger son lets me know how unhappy he is about this periodically, but he's, you know, <laughs> we all do the best we can. But yeah, that is like the next step that we have to do with my younger son as well and to, you know and it's going to be a different he's a different person so our you know how we're going to work that out is going to have to be be different as well Jean, before we go any further i want to uh, even before thinking about talking about supported decision making there's a really big change that's going on or has been going on slowly uh, and in new york particularly related to the Office of People with Developmental Disabilities, OPWDD, um, is a program called um, Self-Directed. And the, the model that has always existed, or usually existed, um, for people with disabilities is you kind of get signed up with a social service agency, and you get services, and they kind of are with you and tell you where to go. Or they give you options, but there's like right. a limited menu. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, look, I, I'm not trashing social service agencies at all. Uh, but And there's a lot of money that gets taken off of the top of that, and it narrows your choices. So New York State has a program where families or self-advocates, people who are, who are older, not families, can say, um, these are the things that I, I need. This is all, by the way, Medicaid money that goes through the state. Um, say, I want to live here, so part of my budget is this. I want, you know, I need, uh, I need job supports, and I need, you know, certain, and so what we're, uh, my older son is in a program called Self-Directed, uh, which has allowed us to tailor, I mean, that's what's paying for uh, his support, the supported apartment that we mm -hmm. set up. I mean, if we hadn't bought the apartment, we would probably have to have rented it. And as it is, we're using that money like rent to pay off, um, you know, pay you know, a mortgage on it. There's mm -hmm. maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, um, you know, and he has, to, he has to have overnight staff. As emergency staff. So, but the point is that 
that's taking it out of the realm of the money. Much more of the money is going into really the specific things that we all decided and sort of based on things that he's, you know, clearly indicated that he likes and wants in his life uh, to make possible. And that's a whole kind of, I mean, there's two sides of it. One, there's not enough housing for people with disabilities. There's a huge housing shortage in New York right. State. It costs far less money for us to do this than for the state to have to pay uh, to have somebody in a, in a group home. Um, so this is saving the state money um, as well. But the, the bigger thing is that it's the way to create the material basis for people to actually create the lives that they want to live rather than their lives being defined by uh, the government and institutions. It's about right. having a life and not just services. Right. So, so self-direction is key. None of this would be happening without it. That's yes. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but I'm guessing that it's a lot of work to come up with a plan. How yeah, it's happen? not just coming up with a plan. It's you know tracking and making sure that you're on the plan. Uh, you work with um, what's called a broker, mm -hmm. um, who actually you figure out what the needs are, figures out you know what amount of money is going to need it, be needed, uh, gets submitted and approved by the state, and then the money comes in and has to go through what's called the financial intermediary. So it's a nonprofit that can accept the money and cut the checks um, to pay for, um, you know, there's there are a lot of rules, and you have to make sure that you're paying for the rules, and you have to be able to keep track of how the money is being spent, and that is really, really a very, very time-consuming. It's almost the second job, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So you're doing all this work, and your son is definitely benefiting, but the state is saving money too, correct? Yes, and a lot of, you know, there's a double side to this. The state wants more and more people to go into this program. Right. But there's kind of two questions. Is it because the state is suddenly philosophically committed to, <laughs> yeah. you know, people being self-directed, or is it because it's going to yes. save them so much money? And what they're really doing is yeah. moving the work, the workload, onto um, parents and, right. you know, I say parents generally because there are a lot of other people who obviously are not biological parents, but um, relatives and caregivers. Oh, I have a few notes here. It says, families have the burden for finding, employing, and managing staff, right, tracking budgets, keeping eligibility paperwork up to date. It's all family and self-advocate. It yeah. is amazing. So there's a tremendous amount of responsibility, and also for somebody like your son, a tremendous amount of benefit. It's pretty great. Do yeah, which is what makes what makes it worth it. You know, I mean, oh. he's having the you know, he's having the time of his life. <laughs> he's got a you know has far more you know uh, social activities than I do, and you know, very large network of friends, and yeah. Perhaps more than the typical 23-year-old. Yes. It sounds like yeah. that to me. I mean, these days people are living at home till they're 30 to save money, and here he is on the town taking trips, going to conferences, getting invitations. Yeah. It sounds pretty fabulous yeah. to me. I mean, he has a really great personality. Uh, they both they have both have very unique personalities in, in their own way. Um, but that, that social capacity has really stood him in good, you know, good stead. It's a secret weapon. Yeah. 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 Do you think that doctors and therapists are helpful allies for families as they try to promote independence? 
Well, we have to make a distinction, a couple of distinctions. Well, let's take the doctors first. Um, doctors, until they're just starting to, people are just starting to familiarize, familiarize doctors, adult, not just pediatricians. Mm -hmm. I mean, pediatricians was a whole thing where it was, starting with pediatricians, my own personal experience was, I mean, our pediatrician missed the diagnosis. And yet we decided to stay with him because we, we, I mean, we liked him. And we also thought that this is going to be, you know, an education for him as well. Um, but, you know, it took the, um, you know, the, the professional organizations a long time to start getting physicians to start administering um, basic tests, screening tests for, mm -hmm. for autism. And, you know, my older son, he's too old for a pediatrician. So a couple right. of years ago, we... And, and then we started to look for, um, you know, uh, an adult doctor who was familiar with people on the autistic spectrum and how they communicate, because it's not always obvious, and how to communicate with, with him. And it took us almost a year, I think, and we finally found somebody uh, who has a kid, uh, who has a child on the spectrum herself. And she does family medicine, but it took us, in fact... You know, my, my, my wife's sister got involved, and she's involved with public health um, media in Washington. And, you know, we ended up calling all over the country to find somebody. <laughs> so it, it's like, um, it's this is, the medical field is only just the same way as um, public services, police. Right. They're only just starting to right. adopt, adapt themselves to real, you know, to meeting this rising population. And I'm just talking about autism, you know, but there's all of these other, you know, almost any other disability, uh, doctors aren't really, you know, like there are these specialized doctors right. that you go to, but generally speaking, you know, a general practitioner does not have that much contact with, or understand the unique issues of individuals with all kinds of disabilities and, and their families. Um, in terms of therapists, I'm not entirely sure. Are we talking about um, uh, social workers or uh, psychologists who give, or are we talking about occupational therapists and physical therapists? No, not, not OTs and physical therapists. I'm talking about um, professionals in general that are related to the medical profession. Because one of my fears is that parents that are interested in independence and autonomy We'll discuss it with the doctor, and the doctor, through fear of liability, might say, no, that isn't safe. I mean, it seems that liability always comes to a doctor or other clinical professional's mind first. I guess um, I respect, I, I mean, I think that I, uh, my wife and I have always decided, you know, I mean, that there's a, you know, we, that not all, you know, I don't, we don't necessarily have to agree with everything every doctor says. So true. Or any professional. I mean, we were told not, my son had a Spanish, my older son had a Spanish-speaking um, sitter who was very, very close to him. He was, he was, he's bilingual. And we were told very early on by the speech therapist to, you know, that she should not be in his life. And we decided it was more important emotional relationship that she had with him was more important than what they were saying. Consequently, he's bilingual. Um, and thank God he's bilingual. It's made him more employable. 
part of his job is he's able to speak Spanish to the customers, you know, in the restaurant where he works. Um, so I haven't really had that experience as much because we usually felt as though, well, like it's like the same thing with the pediatrician. There were ways in which there were things that we knew or understood mm -hmm. that they didn't. Um, and, and you know, the actually the occupational physical therapists. There's a lot there too because those the ones that really work with people with disabilities uh, know and understand a yes. lot more about their yes, capacities that you try to explain to doctors like right. you know what sensory That's integration right. is and exactly. like, they have no they don't have any clue yeah i have no beef with the ot's and the pt's i think they're the ones really that teach the independent yeah. living skills the best yeah 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 um i have a really tough question for you what would you say to a parent or a professional that points to an IQ score and says he'll never be able to be independent. Um, what would I say? I'd probably say thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Adios. Um, yeah, because I mean, time and again, I've heard that way too many times. Right. Um, not just about my kids. I heard so many other parents and adults mm -hmm. now who are talking about that, you know, where they were dismissed as, you know, and then they were able to do all kinds of things. I mean, yeah. uh, intelligence tests are always evolving. Um, you know, they started in World War One, and, you know, those were very, very obvious. You know, they you know, were seen as very racist and classist. And so they're kind of crude instruments, in my opinion. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, so I'm sure would be able to defend that. But in my I don't know, personal experience, they're kind of crude instruments. And we really don't know enough about um, what we're learning more about is this idea of neuroplasticity, that the brain doesn't just stop growing at some point, and that there actually is a tremendous amount of growth that can that can go on, you know, and people are both responsible for itself and, you know, it and people around them help to contribute to that. So it's like, I, you know, I would never, particularly with a younger per a young person, accept, accept that. I mean, I, um, you know, one of my brothers, well, had a lot of cognitive uh, developmental issues and seemed sort of like he was a perpetually young, youngish person. And he's 50 now, and he would have been the last, you know, and he basically, um, he's become the nucleus of, I don't live in Ohio, I live in New York, but the nucleus of kind of keeping my brother and their, their you know, my mother, and he's kind of the person who manages a lot of this stuff now, and I have a conversation with him now, and it's more like speaking adult to adult than speaking to a really young person. And he's 50, and that took decades. <laughs> so I just don't, you know, I just think we just don't know. That's right, and we shouldn't put limits on it. Yes, we, we just shouldn't don't put know. limits, yeah. Okay, so you are definitely a forerunner in the disability world because you're holding up a model that many would like to emulate. How can we, as a society, encourage and support families to encourage their children? <sighs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bit, because um, you know, there's, I guess there's two, you know, there's the world as I'd like it to be, and the, there's the world as it is, right. you know, and so, you know, my initial, you know, uh, 
having an actual housing program, um, you know, having the usual goes full employment, you know, all kinds of things like that. I mean, families need to be healthy in order to raise all kinds of healthy kids, and all of those kinds of you know, if you don't have guaranteed health care and all of those other things, you have all these other stresses that play into how much you're actually able to give and support your kids. That being said, you know, we don't live in that world, and it seems to be going in the opposite direction. Um, so the question is really, I think it's, it's about uh, professionals, the very, you know, professionals as well as um, just the population in general starting to adopt a different way of seeing people um, with disabilities as not not other, but really to stop and really stop thinking about like what people look like or what they sound like. Remember there's another person in there with a brain. You know? um, and then I felt like that's really what I got out of you know my brothers, which is uh, they had a lot of weird behaviors and a lot of weird stuff, but they really, you know, they had in, they had their own perceptions and perspective on the world that was unique because they were living kind of outside of the mainstream of the way we were, and that was very valuable to me. So I think that it's this question of not dismissing people and say that they don't have value because they're not able to engage with the world in typical ways, but it really is the attitude that has to change. It's really the attitude that has to change. Um, I've been thinking about this also in terms of, you know, what are people's rights and how do we see what people's rights are as Americans, as, as human beings, and do we think that people with disabilities have the rights, the kind of material supports um, to be the best, most contributing, whatever, the, you know, contributing member to the extent they can in society, and that is their right. It's not, you know, it's not that the society should be giving this to them because we're, you know, we're a pleasant, you know, we're a generous society. It's not about that. It's about, you know, how people have rights in the world, or should, or, you know, have rights to be able to engage with the world in, in the way that they're, you know, kind of able to. And um, that that's just a whole other way of, of perceiving the role of people with disabilities and what their, their purpose is, you know, where they, you know, where, where they fit into society. Well, for sure, I see that in your older son, and I dare say I'm going to see it in your younger son, too, over the next couple of years. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Ray. This We've was really great. So Thank much. you very much.